From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. At this point, uh, our committee has just begun to show America the evidence that we have gathered. There is much more to come, both in our hearings and in our report. For the past couple of weeks, a United States House Select Committee has been conducting a televised primetime series of hearings on the unprecedented attacks on our capital and our democracy on January 6, 2021. We've also seen long-anticipated rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court this week that fundamentally redefine the relationship between church and state and between majority and minority religions in this country. Political management expert Greg LaBelle will be back with us for a look at the electoral implications of these major events. Later at Bible study, I shared with some of my closest friends, hoping they'd give me some wisdom. Instead, they just went straight to the rules. They said, being gay is a sin and you can't accept it. (laughs) Not accept my daughter? What does that even mean? I was devastated. I realized I was being asked to choose between the two most important parts of my life, my child and my church. We really do live in two Americas. When it comes to LGBTQI plus rights and identity, in particular, it is either obvious to you that Satan is at work undermining the family and civilization itself in the form of the quote-unquote gay agenda, or you're appalled at the nonstop attacks from right-wing political and religious figures apparently indifferent to science and the empirical evidence of the harm done to real lives by the fear and hate-mongering that seems to be so helpful in the culture wars. Challenging the toxic narrative of God versus gay, the Faith for Pride campaign from Interfaith Alliance and its partners brought together communities from across the nation to raise up the dignity and worth of LGBTQI plus persons because of, not in spite of, deeply held religious convictions. This week, we'll hear how the Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, Texas, is taking part in Faith for Pride. 1944. That was the first year Gallup asked Americans the question about faith in God. From 1953 to 1967, 98% of U.S. adults believed in God. For quite a while now, there have been regular reports from reputable pollsters indicating a relentless decline in the number of Americans claiming affiliation with a particular faith and a relentless growth in the number of nuns, including atheists and the spiritual but not religious. Well now, brand new research from the Gallup organization reveals a new low in the percentage of us who believe in a God, and we'll get details from Gallup's Lydia Saad. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and, and this place. The event at First Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina, was billed as a celebration of our freedom as Americans and our freedom in Christ, a coming together in freedom to honor God. So why was the 246th U.S. Army Band scheduled to play? Not sure, but the Military Religious Freedom Foundation is reporting that five and a half hours after filing a protest, it received word that this blatant disregard of the religious conscience of members of the military was canceled. But in light of this week's Supreme Court ruling allowing government funding for religious schools in Maine, shrouded in the caveat that it applies only if no public school is available, how long before that test is applied everywhere else? So, for example, what if no other band were available that day in Columbia, South Carolina? 
Could the army band be compelled to take part in this overtly Christian nationalist exercise, just like secular and non-Christian taxpayers in Maine will now be compelled to underwrite religious education? There's really no end in sight. And in the aftermath of the recent mass shootings in this country, a particularly memorable um, Christian response came from actual elected congresswoman from Colorado, Lauren Boebert. If Jesus had just had more AR-15 assault rifles, it would have kept the government from killing him. The silence from Bible-thumping right-wingers has been deafening, because theology can't hold a candle to the need for absolute, partisan, lockstep brand loyalty. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide, and it's available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. Both the January 6th hearings and the rightward lurch of the Supreme Court and seminal rulings on the fundamental questions of religious freedom for all are receiving plenty of real-time coverage this month. But what's the impact of this likely to be come November, if any? The perfect person to ask is political management expert Greg LaBelle, who joins us now. Greg, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thanks, Jax. Good to see you. So the select committee surprised everyone with a planned extension into July for hearings that were supposed to wrap up this month. From a political impact perspective, does that move dilute public attention or could it galvanize concern even more? What it may do, actually, is people, the big question, of course, is well, why are they delaying it? Um, and I think that if the, and it seems to me that, uh, among other things, they have unearthed some video footage of uh, uh, someone who was doing a long term uh, series of interviews uh, with the, the Trump campaign during the election. And um, they have uh, since gotten hold of that material. And, it, and I think a part of this is uh, they're finding uh, what may be described, I don't know, we'll see, as a treasure trove of information inside uh, comments uh, by people uh, prior to January 6th and, and the election itself that may shed some light uh, on on how this all played out and uh, who was doing what and who was saying what. So I suspect that has the potential, I think, to raise the stakes uh, and the interest level but if it fails to do that, then uh, then I think it heads in the other direction. You remember when um, Mueller was uh, testifying before the Senate on his report on the uh, activities in, in, the, in the 2016 election. The, the nature of that was so lackluster that it, in fact, worked, I think, in the opposite direction that I think uh, Democratic members of the committee had hoped. So it remains to be seen, but I think it's interesting and potentially helpful to the committee uh, because it seems that they have unearthed uh, some additional information. So what are some of these new things that you've heard about? Well, I, I think that's the big one. I think the other question is, and, and what I hear um, some uh, some rumors about, is that some other folks who had declined uh, to testify, having seen how this is going, um, have decided I will put my own sort of interpretation on why. And I would say it might be a desire to be on the right side of history. It also might be the desire to sell a forthcoming book uh, <laughs> or any number of other <laughs> any number of other options. 
that a few folks, uh, and I don't have any names, I, I think there's a long list of folks who have declined to speak, are, are rethinking that and, and may be interested in having a conversation with the committee. So, Greg, 50 years ago was the break-in at the Democratic National Committee offices at the Watergate. And yeah, I'm old right. enough to remember the events and the hearings that followed. Yeah. Uh, You've studied those hearings. You're much younger than I am, so uh, so you probably don't remember them firsthand. Um, but all of the nostalgia for those hearings has sort of primed the pump of people watching the January 6th hearings now. What are some of the feelings you've had while watching this testimony? Was there anything that was particularly affecting? Well, first of all, you're too kind. Um, I, uh, I was uh, m- more than old enough uh, at the time. Uh, I actually spent um, that later that year, 1972, working on Senator George McGovern's presidential campaign. So I was not a toddler. Uh, I, uh, and I remember uh, being glued to the, to the TV, um, black and white at the time, uh, sitting there watching, watching these things and watching uh, Sam Irvin charm America with uh, his chairmanship of, of the committee. I have been thinking about that a little bit. Uh, and I think wh- one thing that occurs to me, uh, and this relates to, I think, one of this, wh- how this committee has sort of played out a- a- thus far in terms of its membership. There were Republicans on that committee um, who were very much in, in I think, uh, President Nixon's camp um, as the thing was going on. However, if you if you look back, they were willing to participate. They participated at a level that um, was, um, by today's standards, remarkably honest and sincere. Uh, they were asking hard questions. It was dignified. And it proceeded apace, and the, the committee led to, with the help of, of one John Dean and, and his revelations, to get to the bottom of the situation and to move uh, not only members of Congress, but I think the American people along with them. That's very different from what we're seeing now. I think that um, there's been a little bit of culture shock for me in watching these hearings, because for one thing, we haven't seen uh, Jim Jordan sitting there waving his arms in the air and yelling at people. Uh, on a related matter, I think we have spent much more time, which was, I think, also true in my memory of the of the Watergate hearings, hearing from the witnesses. Um, hearings now tend to be pontifications by members of committees uh, accented by a few moments of, of yes, sir, uh, and, and no, sir, from, from witnesses. That has not been the case. This was a huge mistake on the part of, of Kevin McCarthy, a huge um, a strategic mistake on the part of uh, Kevin McCarthy playing this out. Do you have the sense that Americans are engaged with these hearings, especially Americans who may not have taken the events of January 6th seriously? Are minds made up? Some minds are made up. I think it's clear that there are two audiences for the committee. One is the Justice Department and the Attorney General in particular. Um, but the other is that vast middle. Um, these folks who have not been particularly plugged in uh, and uh, who may be hearing about this, may be watching some of it, but uh, may be hearing about it um, secondhand, reading about it uh, online in the paper in the morning and so on and so forth. That's why I think the, the nature of the hearings has, has been so, so critical. We can only hope, Jack, that people are paying attention to this because uh, there's a lot of devastating information coming out, and it's coming out of the mouths of Republicans. And, and that, I think, is another significant 
piece of this. These are members of the administration. Uh, these are members of the Trump campaign who have decided for reasons, some of the reasons we may have mentioned earlier to sort of fess up at this point and, and give us an honest sense of sort of what was going on and where they were and what they were doing uh, in, in the process. I don't think we'll really know until we get to the end of, of the hearings how much of an impact it will have, because it depends, as I said, with the Mueller investigation is a good example, is where these things go and how well they're presented. Thus far, I think they've been presented quite well. And I think if we can use the word production value here, the term production value, yeah. that these hearings are different than any I've ever seen before. They, they are, Jack, and I think on two levels. Uh, the production values are very high, but they're not glitzy. Right. Um, they manage to hit that middle between, um, you know, home movies and political ads, which is really <laughs> important. It's been hardcore, important stuff that's pre- been presented in a straightforward manner, and they've done a really good job of putting this together in a way that it, that it is about news and not about propaganda. And, and how are these hearings going to impact the midterm vote this fall? Who's going to be impacted and how? Uh, Again, I think that remains to be seen. Uh, We never know. Of course, the unknown factor, as always, is Donald Trump and how he's going to react to this stuff as it it goes on. He's already, uh, I understand, um, complained that his opinion hasn't been asked in these hearings. Personally, I'd love to see that. I'd, I'd love to see the committee call him in and have him go in. I don't think it's going to happen. But how, how he perceives this uh, and how he talks about it has the potential, I, I think, to split Republican voters, um, because as you as you noted, there are people uh, in the Republican Party, the, the so-called base, who are committed to Donald Trump no matter what. But there are a lot of other thinking, uh, sentient Republicans uh, and independents, I think, who are looking around. Now, the challenge, of course, is um, how much this affects the really powerful challenges um, that the Democratic Party is facing on its side, particularly with the issue of inflation. We all know that that tends to drive these midterms. So there's going to be a balancing act here between how important these become, um, these issues become, which are more philosophical as opposed to uh, how much I'm paying for a, a gallon of gas at the gas station these days. I guess if I were going to put my money on it, I would say probably the gas price is going to win, but we'll see. So we focused on uh, Congress, and we've alluded to the executive branch. Let's turn to the Supreme Court. The kinds of decisions the court is ending its term with should surprise no one. But they do fundamentally change the kind of country we're living in for many, many Americans. We're talking on a Thursday, and there are still rulings to come tomorrow, Friday, but I think it's safe to assume that a death blow to Roe versus Wade will have happened between when we tape this conversation and when people hear it over the weekend and beyond. So I'd like to call on our electoral expert here to consider what impact these late-term rulings might have at the ballot box in November. We have to talk about the abortion issue. It is the big one, which I think um, has the potential to both and its impact, specific impact and its broader impact. I think no decision will probably be more of a clear indicator of where we are going uh, as a country through the eyes of the, the Supreme Court majority at this point. So I think that decision and that you're right, we're taping this on Thursday, that decision could possibly come down today, uh, but more than likely uh, by the end of the uh, by the end of the week. 
Here's my theory. We hear rumblings about this now that the chief justice is is trying to sway one of the members who signed on to that draft that was released to move away from it. There's a certain amount of cynicism in me when I watch these things, and I would not be shocked if the final decision is different from the draconian decision that was released in, in draft form, in that it will attempt to soften the blow, change the perception a little bit. It will not be as hardcore as the language that we saw in that draft. I I call this the kid talking to his parents. Can I have a pony? No. Can I have a pony? No. Can I have a pony? No. Well, can I have a dog? Yes. And the dog is the only thing he ever wanted. And I think there's sort of a little bit of this uh, going on here. If they can come up with a decision and if he can move um, at least one of the signatories on that draft, to a decision that can be presented as not withdrawing Roe v. Wade entirely, if leaving some sort of language in that allows for some sort of fudge. That, I think, is what Roberts would like to do. Remains to be seen, but that wouldn't shock me if that's how this decision comes down and allows it to be perceived as less critical, less important um, as we approach the midterms than it seems uh, if you just go on the language that's in the in the draft. Does that make any sense? It made a lot of sense. And, and actually, if they don't get the pony, if they only get the dog, even though it may be what they only really wanted, will that result in a reward for Mitch McConnell and his minions? Or do you think that voters will focus on the less than MAGA imperfections that have, uh, if we can call it, plagued some of the Republicans in Congress? I think there's such a split in the Republican Party right now, and I think it's growing. We're seeing this over this gun control legislation. I mean, from my perspective, I'm glad we're doing something on gun control. But boy, this compromise is nowhere near what I think I personally think needs to happen. I have trouble even calling it gun control legislation. Uh, There are some changes, and I know that um, Chris Murphy and others are are, are happy, and I think appropriately, to have something happen after 30 years, but uh, but it's not much. This is splitting the the Republican. Republicans in in Congress. This will certainly, I think, spill over into Republican voters. Uh, some of who will say this is enough, and others will say no, this is this is not nearly enough. None of this should be um, should be allowed. There are splits developing in, in the Republican Party, and I think that Trump, in his own weird sort of way. Uh, almost gets a kick out of these these splits that are developing. So all of this is going to take time to sort of sort out. There's so many things that are going on with us right now. We haven't even talked about the issue of Ukraine and how that's affecting so many aspects of, of our life and that broader issue of uh, the assaults on democracy across the world, which are important but tend not to have a significant impact uh, on midterm elections, but may to some extent because um, Ukraine is so pervasive and so much in the news. Hmm. So looking at the court, are we looking at a new level of politicization or does it just feel that way? Uh, Did earlier generations of conservatives have the same kind of discomfort at some of the seminal rulings of the court on civil rights and marriage equality and and stuff like that. I, I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle on that, Beck. I don't know whether we can call it politicization on the court. We can definitely call it the politicization of placement on the court. 
the way in which members of, of the judiciary end up uh, sitting on the Supreme Court has changed dramatically in the past generation. And I think that's the result. Uh, we, we know uh, a number of these people uh, who signed that draft opinion on abortion said clearly during their hearings, this is settled law. This is settled law. Well, clearly they didn't believe that this was settled law and they were willing to um, uh, to misrepresent their views then. So I think the process and the process has become much more adversarial on the part of members of the Senate on both sides. It's a bit of a circus now. So I think the problem may be more in the process one goes through to get on the court than once you're on the court. That that seems to be, I think, what's causing a lot of these problems and the result that we see that doesn't line up with what we were told during hearings. Let me ask you to give us a quick take on how you think the Biden administration in general is handling the economic and political challenges that keep coming its way. Um, as you know, so many of these economic issues are mostly out of control of the administration, or in some cases, entirely out of control of the administration. This proposed holiday on federal gas taxes, that's not something that the president can do unilaterally. That has to go through Congress. Uh, and, and, and many of these things are cyclical. And so it's a difficult place to be in terms of how much the administration can actually do. That said, I continue to be concerned about the messaging strategy uh, coming out of the White House. I'm not sure they're not, they're not playing their A game um, when it comes to to messaging, but that has been a problem with Democrats for a very long time. We we just saw uh, after this announcement on gas taxes that there were people in the administration who were saying, "We don't think this is such a great idea. We think it's going to work." That's not good messaging for an administration. So no. that's a that's a part of the problem here. Greg, what else should we be watching? Because you're watching when it comes to thinking about the midterms. I think that one of the things we have to pay attention to is um, Republicans learned from Democrats in, in the last um, midterm that um, women could play a key role. Um, I hear rumblings that Republicans are relying more and more, and this is relatively new for Republicans, uh, relying more and more on reaching out to conservative women. Uh, in some of these races this time. That's something relatively new for Republicans. That's not usually a specific focus of their work. But the question is how successful that will be in the face of some of these things, like the, some of the scandal stuff we're seeing coming out of the hearings, but also the abortion decision and, and others uh, that may be coming down the line. The other thing to watch, I think, and this is more long term, this abortion issue is not the end of the line. Others are in line behind this. If if the MAGA base is successful in this, there's every indication that they will go after issues around contraception. They will go after LGBTQ rights. I mean, they want to undo a lot of the stuff that they find absolutely heinous. Just read that platform that came out of the Texas Republican Party this past week. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's horrendous what's what's in there. They want to roll back the clock um, many, many, many years, and um, they, they may not succeed, but they're they're going to try. Wow. Worth paying attention to. Well, Greg LaBelle is Assistant Professor Emeritus of Political Management at George Washington University and Director Emeritus of GW's Native American Political Leadership Program and Semester in Washington Politics Program. I can only imagine the size of your business card. And just <laughs> like your host, 
he doesn't seem to be able to get this retirement thing quite right because he's now the interim director of the AT&T Center for Indigenous Politics and Policy. That's a lot, and we're glad you could make some time for us on a busy day. Greg has also worked in several presidential campaigns and uh, actually was, for a time at least, the executive director of Interfaith Alliance, just like me. We're trying to have somebody who had that position on the show every week, if we can. <laughs> Greg, thank you for taking the time for us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Jack. It's good to see you, and happy retirement. Thank you. There's lots more still to come on this week's show. Up next, Faith for Pride at the Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, Texas. And later, Americans are galloping away from God. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief at any time on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Faith for Pride is a team effort among many organizations, groups, and congregations nationwide. The effort is complex, but the message is simple. Let's protect our LGBTQI plus siblings from religiously tainted discrimination and bigotry. Let's overtly say you are welcome and celebrated. The need is great, and the campaign, led by Interfaith Alliance and its partners, is great as well. Among the many Faith for Pride events nationwide, the Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, Texas, is among the many congregations hosting a Faith for Pride event. And I'm happy to welcome senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. Neil G. Thomas, to State of Belief Radio. Reverend Neil, thanks for being with us, and happy Pride. Happy Pride to you, and thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. So the Cathedral of Hope is recognized as the largest predominantly LGBTQ church in the world, with over 4,000 members. The word has so many negative connotations these days, but maybe we can start redeeming it. Is the cathedral a gay megachurch? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, certainly when it was founded in 1972, the uh, ministry was predominantly uh, for the LGBT community, especially at a time when not many Protestant churches were welcoming uh, LGBTQ plus people. Um, of course, over the years, uh, that has changed. I, I believe the ministry of the Cathedral of Hope has impacted many denominations and many congregations worldwide. Um, and so today, uh, whilst we are still the largest predominantly LGBTQ plus congregation in the world, uh, there is also a, a truth that many, many allies, um, uh, or parents and, and friends um, of LGBT people who have left their churches uh, are now joining us um, and, of course, the other reality is that as conservative religion in the United States has taken hold, many people have fled conservative, charismatic, contemporary worship experiences and have found a home at Cathedral of Hope. It's a great answer. You know, Americans love categories and often ascribe a uniformity of politics and concerns to groups, groups like blacks or Jews or Texans. Mm -hmm. And that 
that categorization is, is generally inaccurate. What are some of the mistakes that people make about the politics and concerns of the LGBT community? Well, you know, people always say to me, do politics have a place in the pulpit? And I'm very clear to say that, of course, politics have a place in the pulpit. Uh, Jesus spoke politics in his own time uh, to his own culture. Uh, Indeed, you can't read the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are persecuted, without understanding that they were political statements. Now, what we get confused about, I think, in the United States is because of the polarization that we face today, is that people immediately think that you're doing party politics, in other words, Democrat or Republican. Um, I, we don't, I don't believe that's what we do. I believe that we speak to the values of Jesus, which have political overtones. And look, if your party doesn't agree with the politics of Jesus, that's, that's not my problem. Uh, I think that each individual has to examine where they stand on the politics of Jesus, the values of Jesus. I prefer to use the values than the politics uh, and understand then where our faith aligns and what it calls us to be as ambassadors in the world. And I believe that Jesus would be marching um, in, a, in a gay pride parade uh, today uh, in the same way that uh, he marched with those who were considered outcasts, uh, sinners, um, prostitutes, uh, you know, all the labels that we give to people these days. That's where you found Jesus on the margins of society, bringing the margins to the center uh, in a countercultural experience. And if that's not political, then I don't know what it is. Very nice. How, how does your affiliation with the United Church of Christ play the groundwork for the kind of ministry you lead? We're very grateful, uh, Jack, to the United Church of Christ because they stand with many of the values uh, that we espouse at Cathedral of Hope. And whilst, you know, no denomination is perfect, uh, the United Church of Christ has also pinned its uh, flag to the, to the mast, if you will, um, uh, experiencing and celebrating LGBTQ people now throughout the denomination. And whilst, of course, we know that not every United Church of Christ is an open and affirming congregation, more and more every single day uh, are going through what we call the ONA process uh, and are becoming open and affirming. But open and affirming isn't just the LGBT people, as indeed at the Cathedral of Hope, refugees, uh, people who are fleeing from their own countries because of persecution, people who are leaving the, their former denominations, not rejecting Jesus, but certainly rejecting the brand of Christianity that they have found, and and quite frankly, the brand of Christianity that we have in the United States now um, is, is really Christian nationalism. It, it's not the not the Christianity that I believe Jesus came to found more than two thousand years ago, and people are rejecting it. They're leaving. Um, some are just abandoning church altogether, which is extremely sad. Um, others are finding refuge not only at Cathedral but in many other uh, more liberal. Protestant congregations, both in the United Church of Christ and, of course, in many others. And we know that even today, the United Methodist Church still battles uh, with the ways in which it it treats and understands LGBTQ plus people. Uh, I think the difference for us is that we say we're not just open and affirming, we are open and celebrating, and that, that we celebrate people wherever they are on their faith journey. So speaking of celebration, what made you want to take part in the Faith for Pride campaign on top of the outreach and services that you already provide? We think it's really important uh, that in a world as we find ourselves today, polarized around uh, party politics, 
uh, around the lines of religion um, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that, that demonizes people, um, that it was a, an important moment for us to stand with our interfaith partners um, and to begin to speak up and to speak out against Christian and religious nationalism. Uh, Pride, Pride Month is a great opportunity for us to do that uh, and aligns ourselves with many other interfaith partners who are raising the mask, not just around LGBTQ people, who quite frankly are under attack right now. Uh, the new transgender laws about women in sports uh, here in Texas, uh, the, the GOP has just, just laid its foundations for the next legislative process, uh, basically saying that LGBT people are, are intrinsically evil um, and that really have no place in the GOP. Uh, that it really is important for us now to say this is this is a faith concern, and as people of faith, it's important for us to speak up and speak out. Jesus wasn't silent. The prophets before Jesus were not silent. The prophets after Jesus have not been silent. And no change takes place in the United States without religious people, in this case LGBTQ plus religious people, making their voice heard and saying this is not what we believe God represents, not just in our country, uh, but in our world. So tell us about the Faith for Pride event that you organized. So we actually have a, a whole month of, uh, of, of Pride events at the Cathedral of Hope this year. It's the first year we've been back since, uh, since COVID, really. Um, and so we decided to take this whole month uh, to highlight some of the, uh, the, 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 the impact of Cathedral uh, in the inter, in the interfaith, interreligious, um, and of course in the Christian world, uh, and so we started off the very beginning of the month uh, with our pride uh, pride event. That's Pride in Dallas as well. Uh, we took to the streets, we marched, we we staffed some booths at the Pride Festival. Uh, we moved on then to, uh, of course, remember Orlando um, and the folks that uh, were brutally uh, murdered and, and lives were taken uh, in, in a pulse in Orlando. But we then did a Juneteenth, which linked, of course, the, the plight of, of black LGBT people um, and, and the understanding that Juneteenth and Pride uh, have some interconnections, and we need to acknowledge that and represent it. And then, of course, this, this Sunday, uh, which is uh, for World Pride Sunday, uh, we will be celebrating our LGBT people and our faith. And that's really what we've been doing with the Interfaith Pride events, is really linking our faith with our gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, and understanding that our faith impacts every piece of that. Reverend Neal, this is a time of unprecedented organized assaults on the LGBTQI plus community. And certainly, as you mentioned, we've seen a lot of it in Texas, in addition to what's going on nationwide. Almost every time, religion is being used to justify these assaults. So what is the role that faith leaders can play in pushing back against this terrible trend? That's a great question. And I think that uh, that is something that I think we are grappling with uh, and, and making decisions about right at this very point. Uh, not, not about whether our faith impacts, but how do we frame our message uh, in such a way that makes the biggest impact? Because these attacks are, are incredible. And, and quite frankly, I think it is uh, a statement about white supremacy. Uh, I think it's a statement about anyone who is considered other. Um, and of course, LGBT people, women's bodies, uh, black and brown people uh, are, are targets of this unprecedented attack. And I think we align ourselves 
uh, together. I, I, I quite frankly say that if, if your God hates the same people that you hate, uh, then you've, you've missed, you, this is not God. This is not the God of love. Not the love is God that we read of in the scriptures. Um, and, uh, I, I also say that if, if, if your, if your, if your religion discriminates, it's time for you to get a different religion because religion has always been about love. It's always about extending the table. It's always about knowing this, this sense of, of, of who we are as individuals. Um, and to work out our own salvation, work out our own uh, relationship with God. Uh, and quite frankly, most of this is about imposing somebody else's God on, on, on a, a community, on, on a rule of law. And, you know, here in the United States, we believe in the separation of church and state. I believe in the separation of church and hate as well, but with separation of church and hate. And, um, when these laws, which are, you know, in our secular world or religious laws are being imposed, on a secular world, uh, we we have we have just missed the mark. And uh, as people of faith, it is time for us to speak up. Martin Luther King uh, spoke up for for, for black black folks. Uh, we need to speak up for the LGBT community. But because the attack is on so many different groups, this is an opportunity for 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 us to come around to speak into our values and to highlight this this religious nationalism uh, that is taken over. And taken hold in the United States of America. And I think the end game uh, ultimately is I think that, um, you know, conservative, white, evangelical, not to label too many or to, to say that all, all the, all those people, uh, have the same intent. But I think that they, that the overall is to make America a Christian country. We're already rewriting the founding father's statements. Uh, we're, we're already, uh, injecting uh, our own philosophy and theologies into where America came from. And God help us if we want to impose this kind of law that somehow we believe is Christian um, on the masses. Uh, because, uh, well, frankly, people of other beliefs or other traditions uh, will not have a place at the table. And I think we are on a slippery road. I think we're in dangerous ground. Um, and I think people of faith need to wake up and to speak up, and to speak out, and to speak into reality uh, what they know about this God that we speak of. And that God is always about love. So we know that there are networks of congregations across the United States with a special mission to LGBTQI plus individuals. Are you also building networks of congregations and pastors without a specific mission, working toward defending your congregants and their families? Uh, yes, the simple answer to that question is yes. Of course, we're making those networks in our own denominations um, and across uh, religious lines and, and, and also uh, making those alliances real. Uh, I happen to be this year the co-chair of Faith Forward Dallas. Uh, it's the largest network of progressive uh, interreligious clergy um, here in, in Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and we have already placed on our agenda uh, for 2022-2023 um, LGBT right, rights and concerns. Um, and, and this is from, from, from folks, um, who are, who are from the Muslim background, the Hindu, uh, Christian, Jewish, uh, Baha'i, um, you know, a number of different, uh, faith organizations, religious organizations coming together, uh, to actually speak our values, um, and, uh, are getting ourselves ready for the 2023 legislative process. So yes, those networks are vital. Um, you know, we have stood behind, um, especially our Muslim community when they're under attack here in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
Um, and uh, it's important now that they come alongside and stand behind us um, as we face, as you said, the, uh, some unprecedented attacks. And, and they will look to you uh, for examples of the kinds of services that they should be providing to the LGBTQI plus community. Would you talk about some of the things that Cathedral of Hope does in providing support that is both temporal and spiritual? Well, obviously, spiritual is our, our bread and butter daily business. Uh, so I think that we, we provide that all the time. We do uh, regular, regular courses on uh, sexuality in the Bible, um, helping people reclaim and reframe their faith experience, especially folks who have come uh, from, from churches uh, that have not been affirming and who have uh, uh, told them that God doesn't love them. Uh, we do a tremendous amount of work around some of the uh, conversion therapy um, and ensure, uh, d- doing a lot of that repair. You know, most of this results um, in, in, in uh, drug and alcohol abuse, um, where people are, hi- are hiding and masking the pain of the past. Uh, we know that instances of homelessness in the LGBT community is much higher than the general populace. Uh, we also know that rates of suicide uh, are much higher, uh, especially in gay youth. So we have programs and outreach and mechanisms and methodologies uh, in which we try to provide both temporal and spiritual resources uh, for a wide range of, of folks who have come from a ra- wide range of religious and toxic abuse. Uh, and that is the work that we, we, are, we are committed to. It's the work that we will continue to be committed to, no matter how diverse Cathedral of Hope becomes. Uh, and it's work that is vital. Um, you know, here in, in, in Texas, in Dallas, um, if you're not in a federal, a federally uh, a government business, uh, you can be married today. Uh, you can put a picture of you and your spouse on your desk, uh, and you can be fired from your job. Uh, and if you live in rented accommodation, uh, you can be evicted from your accommodation just solely based on the fact that you're a LGBT person. Uh, that, and of course, here in Dallas and Fort Worth and globally, uh, the high instances of black trans women who are being murdered is out of control. These are the things we need to focus on. These are the things that we need to make a difference on. Uh, and these are the things that we hope that Cathedral of Hope and through our networks and our global partnerships, uh, we can highlight and make a difference in our world. God bless you for all of that, Reverend Neil. How can our listeners find out more about your ministry? Uh, well, of course, go to our website, uh, cathedralofhope.com. Uh, we stream our worship services. Uh, we know that they are accessed throughout the world. Um, and uh, from there, they'll be able to get any of the resources that we uh, hope will make a difference in people's lives. And of course, always feel free to email me at seniorpastor at cathedralofhope.com. And uh, I will commit to at least make a response. And if I can't connect people locally, I can connect people around the globe because there are people and churches and synagogues and temples that are doing similar work that we are doing uh, that will impact people's lives. And listeners, if you're in Dallas, be sure you stop in and hear Reverend Neal and his Texas accent preach the gospel. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Reverend Dr. Neal G. Thomas is senior pastor at the Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, Texas. The 4,000-strong congregation is celebrating Faith for Pride this month in concert with congregations and other groups nationwide. Complete information on the Faith for Pride campaign, who else is taking part, and what events are still to come is available at 
faithforpride.org. Reverend Neal, thanks so much for taking the time out of your vacation to be with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Rabbi Jack. It really has been an absolute honor. Thank you. I'm Jack Moline, filling in this week for your host, Welton Daddy. The headlines were stark. Belief in God in the United States dips to a new low, 81%. While that number might be astronomical in many developed nations, it's unprecedented in the decades Gallup has been polling Americans on religion. With some details, I'm glad to be joined by Lydia Saad, Gallup's Director of U.S. Social Research. Lydia, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. So glad to be here. Lydia Gallup's been polling on the question of faith since 1944. What's the question you've been asking all these years? Well, it's a a very um, complicated question. We say, do you believe in God? (laughs) Question mark. (laughs) That is how we've asked it continuously. We have tried other wordings over the years to get a little bit more complex and more nuanced, but that question, as you said, was first asked in 1944. We updated it through the 50s and 60s, uh, right through, you know, every decade through today. So it's wonderful to have a trend line that goes that long. And as you said, um, this new number caught everyone's attention, including ours. Well, you know, in in most polls, if you get 81% agreement on anything, it's considered an enormous number. Can you put this in historical context for us a little bit about why it's alarming? Yeah, I I don't know if I would call it alarming, uh, but, uh, you know, as you say, 81 is still a high number um, globally. um, But, you know, it compares with uh, 98% of Americans saying they believed in God in earlier decades. And as recently as uh, um, 2013, we had almost 90% saying they believed in God. So for, you know, most of last century, you had near unanimous uh, and yes response to that question. Um, we've seen sort of an acceleration of a decline in belief in God. Um, it was 89% in 2016, 87% in 2017. And now um, just five years later, it's fallen to 81%. So that kind of six point drop is the largest uh, steepest drop we've seen in that time frame. Wow. Now, what faith traditions are represented in this polling, and, and are there some that are outliers among the others? So we our samples are a, a random sample of Americans. So these numbers reflect all faiths in their correct proportions to the population. So we have Christians that break into Catholics and Protestants and within Protestants, every, you know, denomination of Protestants. We have Jewish Americans, Muslim Americans, Buddhist Americans. Uh, but those percentages differ based on the, the faith profile of the United States. So right now, about seven in 10 Americans are Christian, 7% are non-Christian, about 2% Jewish, 1% Muslim, and then less than 1% of other faiths that kind of add up to um, we've got about three quarters of Americans now who profess some faith um, and about a uh, 21% in our latest poll said they have no faith or uh, do not belong to any religion and 3% were unsure. So uh, the, the survey, that number, 81% of Americans believe in God is across all of those groups. Understood. 
the demographics on this are pretty predictable. Which groups of Americans by age are most likely to say they don't believe? And what do the numbers look like for those groups? Yeah, religiosity is very um, correlated with age. Now, we, I mean, we have majorities of all age groups saying they believe in God, but uh, it's highest among older Americans, uh, lowest among younger Americans. Uh, in this survey, because we had a thousand national adults, the um, sort of the most granular we can go with the age breaks are 18 to 29, uh, 30 to 49, 50 to 64, and 65 plus. And so we see belief in God at 68% among that youngest group, climbing to 87 or 88% among the older groups. Um, so again, still majorities, but we've got basically two thirds of young adults believing in God, a third don't, whereas almost close to, you know, 90% of older Americans do. And, and the other thing is that this decline that we saw since sort of we, we averaged several polls from about five plus years ago to compare to today. And we saw a about three to five point drops in religiosity among older Americans, everybody 30 and older. We saw a 10 point drop in relig- religiosity among younger adults uh, from 78% to 68%. Uh, so, so what's happening is as um, people are becoming less religious, we have more people now be, you know, ent- entering parenthood who are less religious and not introducing religion to their children. And so the uh, the math of that is that um, the drop is probably going to increase exponentially because uh, more and more young people just aren't even going to be introduced to religion to begin with. It's not in the older Americans. They may be kind of moving away from God or moving away from religion, but they were religious to begin with, whereas a lot of young people just aren't, aren't going to are going to start out with kind of no faith. So this statistic is going to continue to roll upward through the through the uh, polling generations. Right. That would be the, the mathematical prediction. I think uh, there are certainly many people uh, involved in um, religious advocacy and organizations who would would say, uh, you know, there's other pulls on the system that may that may constrain that. But mathematically, that's what it looks like. So the overall numbers actually hide the huge changes among some cohorts. I mean, you mentioned ages, but that's not the only way you broke this down. While Gallup reports that self-identified conservative faith in God has moved from 95 to 94% in the past 10 years, it's the change among liberals that drags the overall numbers into unprecedented uh, territory. Can you talk about that for a sec? Sure. So, um, well, first I'll give you the numbers and I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. So the percentage of people who say they believe in God by ideological identification currently is 94% among conservatives, 86% among moderates, and 62% among liberals. Um, and those numbers reflect minimal decline in belief in God among conservatives and moderates fell by one or two points, but an 11% uh, decline among liberals. So uh, today, 62% of liberals say that they believe of God in God. Five plus years ago, that number was 73%. And it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. It, it's hard to say whether um, liberals are becoming less religious or people who are becoming less religious are more likely to, to uh, feel uh, at home in you know the liberal um, ideology because ideology and religion are very closely 
related. Um, When you call yourself conservative, that ties in with all sorts of beliefs that stem from um, religious ethics uh, in many cases. Um, So there's a very close connection between those things. And, um, but again, we don't always know if um, people are self-sorting based on what their religiosity is or identifying with um, as a liberal and then your environment is with people who are less religious, makes you less religious. Interesting. And what does it tell us, if anything, that women have seen a bigger decline than men? down 7% uh, as opposed to 3% in the past decade? Yeah, uh, most likely that is uh, reflecting that women tend to be more democratic and a bit more liberal than men. So there's some kind of cross pressures in there. You know, at the same time, women are a little bit older. So we would expect that to to um, work the other way, that they would be more likely to believe in God. But that's that's probably reflecting more of their partisan leaning than their age or, um, yeah, that cross pressures, but the way it nets out a little bit more of a decline among women than men. Interesting. Interesting. Gallup also asked about the relationship that Americans have with God, including beliefs around prayer and divine intervention. What do those numbers look like? Yeah, so we wanted to get a little bit under the hood, as it were, um, this time when we asked whether people believe in God. And so for those who said they do, we followed up and said, which comes closer to your view about God? Uh, God is someone who hears your prayers. God hears your prayers and can intervene on your behalf, or God does neither of these things. So majority of people who believe in God do believe God hears their prayers, but um 42% of all Americans believe in sort of what I would call a personal God. Here's your prayers and intervenes. Uh, another 28% say God hears your prayers only. 11% believe in God, but say God does neither. And then um, we've got the 17% who do not believe in God. So kind of a, a spectrum of belief. Um, but the largest group, that 42%, are people who uh, do believe in a personal God who intervenes. Well, wow. what, what does confidence in organized religion look like according to the poll? So yeah, uh, Gallup asks Americans uh, to say how much confidence they have in a variety of institutions every year. We last updated this um, in June of 2021 and found somewhat of a continuation of the long-term decline we've seen in confidence in uh, what we call the church or organized religion. This is a question that's been asked by Gallup since 1973. And so currently, 37% of Americans say they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in organized religion. Um, It was 42% in 2020. It has kind of bounced around between the high 30s and the 40s for a few years, but um, it's it's definitely come down. So, you know, back in the beginning of this trend, we had two thirds of Americans saying they had a lot of confidence in organized religion. It fell to below 60 percent in the 80s. You know, that was when we started hearing about um, uh, a lot of scandals in uh, um, televangelism and some other um, areas. And then it fell uh, further through um, uh, Catholic sex abuse scandals and the 
2000s and late 1990s. Um, so now by 2010, we're below 50% of Americans saying they have confidence in the religion. And it's, it's just sort of um, uh, dampened from there. So we're at 37% last year. We're going to have a new update on this number in the next month. Um, and we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but sometimes this number you know, changes in direct relation to things happening in the news that we're hearing about to do with uh, religion. Um, sure. uh, I don't know if there's anything that's happened in the past year that would have affected how, how Americans view this, but it's also tied in with people's religiosity. So it's, it's partly what, um, you know, negative perceptions of, of religion in uh, news events, but then combined with Americans uh, moving away from organized religion in their own life. So, you know, the decline from um, uh, large majorities of people attending a place of worship every week to now we barely have three in 10 Americans attending. Um, they don't have that connection to an organized uh religious group and so their confidence in it in that is declining so lots of things going into that and we sometimes have a tendency to read polls as if uh, the only thing that matters to the people who are being polled is the question that's being asked but there are all sorts of things that are inter interconnected uh, when you're doing this polling some of the variables show interesting uh, correlations in the report this month marital status geography race and ethnicity the the distribution uh, of people with within those categories has changed in the general population over the years. Is is there anything to be learned about the connection between those changes and the changes in religiosity? Well, yeah, like some of the items you mentioned, like region, for example, we know that people sort by um, politics and where they live. So we, the South is more conservative than the East or the West. Um, and so we do see, you know, the South still being the most religious region of the country. Um, but not, you know, on this belief in God, it's not by a huge margin. 86% in the South believe in God versus about 80% or a little bit less in the other regions. But uh, belief in God did come down seven points in the South, which was similar, you know, to the national average. So the same forces that are, um, affecting religiosity uh, nationally are, 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 are in effect in the South, you know, mostly with that um, generational shift that's going on. Um, race ethnicity is interesting because, um, you know, historically Black Americans have been very religious, Hispanic Americans, you know, uh, devout uh, Catholics traditionally. And so, um, we do see that people of color combined in our sample, because unfortunately in the 2020 survey, we don't have enough interviews to look at Black and Hispanic Americans separately, but combined 88% uh, believe in God, which is down four points from the last uh, time we looked at this about five plus years ago, uh, versus a um, little bit more six point decline among white Americans down from 85 to 79%. So. You've got 79% of white Americans today saying they believe in God, 88% of um, black and Hispanic Americans. And that also includes um, Asian Americans 
in that larger category. But um, so definite um, racial patterns. And if, you know, with more sample, which sometimes we, we look at when we have, and we've asked it enough times we can combine, you're going to see very interesting interactions between age and ethnicity because, you know, for example, Hispanic Americans are very, are younger uh, than average for the country. A lot of these immigrants coming in are uh, younger than the average age of Americans. And so there's some pressure, there's some, um, to some extent, bringing in less religious Americans because they're younger, but they're more religious because they're Hispanic. So um, when you start to look at Hispanics by age, you probably see that older Hispanics are really contributing to um, maintaining the high level of religiosity of that um, ethnic group. So what, what else in the values and beliefs poll is important for us to think about? Oh, it's a great survey. I, um, not to do a shameless advertisement, but I encourage you and your listeners to go to news.gallup.com or if you end up at just gallup.com, look for the news icon and, you know, search for values and beliefs poll on there. And we cover, um, a, a range of common, you know, sort of moral cultural issues in that survey every year. And we track those attitudes annually. And we've been doing um, that particular survey every year since 2001. But some of the trends in that survey stretch back decades earlier. And so we cover, um, you know, kind of everything from A to Z, abortion, death penalty, euthanasia. Sometimes we get into animal rights on that survey, uh, gambling, polygamy. <laughs> so we ask specific questions about those issues. We also have a kind of a, a laundry list question where we ask Americans to say if they consider each of these behaviors morally acceptable or morally wrong and seeing huge shifts, shifts on some things. This is where we track public support for gay rights and um, has documented a very rapid evolution of public attitudes on that over the past two decades, which has been you know, fascinating and important to um, document. So, yeah, we, we pull that every May and roll those findings out kind of late May into June. So we're just kind of finished that cycle and we're waiting for a new survey in, in June to come, come out. And uh, that's where we're updating our confidence in institutions. Lydia Saad is director of U.S. Social Research at Gallup. The full findings of the research headlined Belief in God in the U.S. Dips to New Low, 81% is, as you said, at news.gallup.com, and we'll link to it on stateofbelief.com. Lydia, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me. Glad to come anytime. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week. 
for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.